It's Wednesday, so you've got me. I'm Carousel Baird. Hey, you can listen to me any day of the week. You can listen online at WRTFM.org, at the A Public Affair podcast, or on the WORT smartphone app. If you like what you hear, click the donate button and support community media. Your donation makes a huge difference. Six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take it to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from Hello, everybody, and welcome to a public affair. It's Wednesday. That means you've got me. I'm your host, Carousel Baird, and we are starting uh, the first of several shows we're going to have talking about the Supreme Court cases. We talk about these every year. It's really exciting, actually. We look forward to these conversations every year of really breaking down what has happened at the United States Supreme Court and how it will impact our lives here in Wisconsin by getting a better understanding of the decisions and the shape uh, that it will have on the entire country. And we're going to start our shows on the Supreme Court talking today, our first show, to talk about the U.S. Supreme Court decision last week to eliminate, ban, prohibit, affirmative action when it comes to college decisions and I know we're going to try and figure out why this has a bigger implication because I think it does on what happens throughout the country and what businesses can do but first we really want to break down the decision and see what the United States Supreme Court did and the decision was based on this equal protection clause of the 14th amendment and we're going to talk about what does that mean and what is that. We have two great guests joining us today. First, we have Reginald O. He is the Alan Miles and Betty Willis Rubin Professor of Law at Cleveland State University College of Law. Hello, Professor O. Thank you for joining us. Hello. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you. And then we have um, Derek Black. He is a professor of law. Uh, he's the Ernest F. Hollings Chair in Constitutional Law at the University of South Carolina. Hello, Professor Black. Hello. Thank you so much, both of you, for joining us. So, first of all, can we sort of start off with the basic question? Because I think everyone skips this question. What What is affirmative action? What does this mean? Does someone want to start us with that? Sure, Professor? I can oh. take a stab. So, I would define affirmative action as affirmative steps schools take in the higher education context to promote inclusion of underrepresented racial groups in their institutions. So, and typically when we think of affirmative action, we think of the use of race as a way to do so. I think of affirmative action more more, more broadly, that it's really about the goal, right? To promote inclusion, diversity, to racially integrate institutions. Um, But what the case focused on was being able, whether schools could use race as a consideration in promoting aff- in affirmative action in their affirmative action policy to promote diversity and racial integration. And I like that you used race as a consideration. So affirmative action programs, are we talking about programs that use race in any way or race in a specific way? So, uh, so basically... Race is used in one way in admission. So a school like Harvard has, you know, assesses a applicant based on various different criteria, such as their academic academic um, qualifications, their extracurricular activities, and for underrepresented racial group up until Harvard, Harvard uh, the Harvard decision, Harvard could use their race as a what they call a plus factor. Mm-hmm in admission. So basically a slight boost to help them in admissions, uh, in the admissions process. So that's how race had been used up until the Harvard decision. Gotcha. And then- yeah, So I want to jump in there for a second. You know, yes, please, Professor. I don't want to disagree with anything, but you know, I quibble with my students so often, and maybe it's just me quibbling with myself about affirmative action. This is sort of ill-defined term. And, and part, part of what I quibble with is I think affirmative action in the lay person's mind, calls to the mind this idea of remedying past discrimination. Right. And at least what the court had affirmed or what the court had had previously allowed was what it was called pursuit of educational benefits and diversity. And it's always wanted people to sort of understand that those actually are two different things, sort of remedying past discrimination and the educational benefits of diversity. And, you know, 
Professor Oaks, of course, captain all that. But I think it, it does alter the way that we think about a thing because, you know, a lot of people have oh, um, an immediate knee-jerk reaction to remedying discrimination that maybe they think is not present. You know, they also may have knee-jerk reactions to diversity, but I think it's hard for any reasonable person to reject the idea that they receive benefits from sort of exposure to diverse, you know, viewpoints and experiences. Um, you know, at the end of the day, this is probably just something that matters more to Professor Owen than the regular person, but I think it does matter. Yes. Well, and Professor Black, help expand that, actually. So when when I was talking about... um this case with friends and I think you know many people have been talking about it over the over the last few days everyone seems surprised and I get surprised I have to remind myself that this case isn't about um remedying past discrimination can can you break down sort of the the history because in 1978 there was a decision by the Supreme Court that allowed, affirmed the use of affirmative action, but it, uh, affirmed it not because of the history of discrimination, of slavery, of um, xenophobia in this country, but for a completely different reason. And that was the conversation and the context that yeah, this what happened there was that the court kept elevating the standards of what it required to prove discrimination that would justify a remedy. And it sort of gotten to this point where it was I wouldn't say impossible. It was it was getting to the level it was almost impossible to make the the connection between you know the stat, current status quo and past discrimination that would suit the court. Now there were some cases actually in the contracting minority business sector which that type of evidence was put forward. Um, but the the civil rights community or, or at least some advocates began to shift more towards listening about the positive benefits to everyone from right. having a diverse environment and that. That was what was new, at least as a, having a majority recognize that in Grover versus Bollinger. You know, unfortunately, there were still some internal contradictions or sort of in, in, internal difficulties in the majority opinion because, you know, if diversity benefits us all, then its benefits will never go away. But this sort of line from, um, Justice O'Connor and Grutter talking about, well, you know, the need for it might go away in 25 right. years. It sort of, it, it, there was an internal logical contradiction between what she was saying was the compelling interest and the sort of 25 year time. Professor O, can you help elaborate on that too? Because I want to sort of set the stage before we even get to this decision. No, Professor Black made reference of uh, Gruder and Gruder. I am I pronouncing it right? When I first heard it, I I thought it would be spelled different than it is spelled. It sounds more like a D to me. A Gruder. The case is Gruder from 2003, which affirmed the original Baki case. Uh, which basically, for for all our listeners, we don't they don't care about the details of those names. But the standard was in 2003, Justice uh, Sandra Day O'Connor wrote the opinion that upheld affirmative action on the grounds of diversity is a good thing. But she also said there's got to be an end to this. So help, help articulate what I'm trying to say here in a better way. Well, so this is a big issue and about Grutter. That was the precedent the court addressed, Roberts addressed in his opinion. And he had to address it to figure out whether or not Harvard and UNC's for action plans uh, were, co are co were constitutional. Now, a lot of commentators think that Harvard UNC overruled Grutter about the diversity as a compelling interest. So a lot of commentators are arguing that's why affirmative action is no longer or it's been banned because schools cannot justify affirmative action in order to um, promote student body diversity, of which racial diversity can be one component. Mm -hmm. And so they basically, people think that rationale can no longer be used. I actually don't think that's accurate. And I actually think as a technical matter, out of, in maybe an actuality close to the court, more or less overruled Grutter, but not technically. Grutter is technically, I think, and I like to see what Derek thinks, is still good law. Huh. Yeah. However, 
what Harvard did was radically reinterpret Grutter to mean something virtually almost completely different, something very different than what Sandra Day O'Connor wrote in the Grutter decision itself. So that's why I say technically I don't, because Roberts never says explicitly Grutter is overruled. You won't find that language in there. You, you can see it in, um, oh, is it the concurrence by well, by other individuals? But not right. But not specifically by Roberts. Right. I hadn't thought about that. Yeah. Oh. And Clarence Thomas said this. He said the Roberts majority opinion effectively overruled. Right. He never says so he, he actually overruled. Right. He not acknowledges yeah. the fact that they don't specifically yeah. articulate that. That's right. That's absolutely right. And so. Um, I think some commentators have jumped the gun a little bit in saying diversity is no longer a compelling interest. That is not accurate. That's not completely accurate. It's not completely accurate. And diversity, I would say, can, can still potentially be a compelling interest. But what Robert says is schools must have measurable goals and outcomes associated with diversity to justify to use diversity as a compelling interest, and he said talked about the educational benefits of diversity. So Harvard mentioned them, some of these benefits, breaking down cross racial stereotypes, for example, and he said that particular learning outcome from diversity is too amorphous, not focused enough, not measurable, and therefore Harvard's plan fails uh, with his own constitutional. He never says diversity can never be the basis interesting. for interaction going forward. That's very interesting. Thank you, Professor Owen. Professor Blackwell, what is sort of your take on the summary of the opinion that's that striking, specifically striking down the affirmative action plans of Harvard and the University of North Carolina? But the interpretation is that it uniformly strikes down affirmative action plans in every university of America in America. Yeah, no, I, I wholeheartedly agree with Professor O. In fact, you know, I was raging my own form of white outrage, I suppose, in the days of the opinion. Like all of these, when I would at home was calling ridiculous headlines, you know, in the New York Times and the Washington Post, CNN, MSNBC, Fox. This is the one thing that Fox and, and New York Times seemed to agree about was that the court had, you know, declared affirmative action unconstitutional. It, it did not. I mean, I, the way, and I was saying that we need to be careful with our language here because ultimately we could lose a decade of progress if the message going out here is, is, is game over. Ultimately, what the court did, and I, I will, you know, restate what Professor O said, but I, I said, look, what they really did was was question the means or strike down the means through which Harvard and UNC uh, and the evidence that they had, right, the means and the evidence had to justify it. They did not strike that concept. And in fact, you know, I, before the opinion, thought I was going to be the guy in the room go, wait a minute, you know, hey, hey, we can still do this. And I said, look, I mean, although I have atomic problems with this majority opinion, it, it did us a number of favors. Uh, some of the languages it did and some of the favorite might be the right word. But in any event, I don't have to be the guy seeming like he's crazy trying to bullet right <laughs> There are there are things in there, and I might just like liken it. And I, you know, as, as Reginald was talking about, it reminds me of Adirondack. He was reminding me of Adirondack, which was a which was a government contracting case which took race into account, and the court struck it down the the affirmative action plan based on evidence. And everyone assumes that was the end of Adirondack. Well, it wasn't. Adirondack actually got remanded. This Adirondack got remanded. They went back. It was to Denver produce all this evidence about discrimination in the employment context, it goes back to the Supreme Court a second time, and the Supreme Court goes, oh, okay, you know, and upholds the plan. Now, I'm not suggesting you want to go back to, to the Supreme Court for, you know, Grunner number two or, or, or you know, Harvard number two, but, you know, I agree with, I agree wholeheartedly. So at what role then does race play into this? Is it, if diversity is a goal is a is is a compelling uh, interest and it can be something that achieved did did the court say but you can't use race or were they not that explicit and help us understand right i'm flashing back to constitutional law from my goodness i took it in the 1990s 
of right the difference between the 14th amendment which pr- protects some cl- some groups of people some classes and requires strict scrutiny and and does that differ then and you don't have it as a strong of a challenge if we're not talking about race we're talking about income right so with regards to race uh, i think Derek and i agree that even after the harvard case schools like harvard can still use race as a plus factor but they have the court laid down guidelines for say when the schools can use race and in a proper way constitutionally proper way and um, Roberts lays down three guidelines that um, schools must comply with. One, that if they're going to rely on diversity as a compelling interest, they need to come up with measurable learning outcomes based on that rationale. So they got to show, they got to consult educational researchers and say, here are what we can achieve in our classrooms through diversity. Here's how we measure it, right? And and we can see, and they're going to admit students to try to achieve those outcomes. So that's what they need to do, measurable outcomes. Second thing, the court, uh, Robert said, um, any use of race cannot have a negative impact on other racial groups. So, and that's a little vague to me, but I think what he's saying is that if you use race, it cannot be used to such an extent. It means other students of other races I think predominantly whites and Asian Americans, their enrollment decreases, their admission rates decrease for them. So it, it basically say it can't, use of race cannot have too big of an impact. And then finally, um, Robert says, any affirmative action program use of race going forward must have a durational limit, a time limit. So Harvard can say, we've met, we've got measurable outcomes. We're gonna use race in a way without negative impact on other students, racial groups, uh, from other racial groups, and we're going to do it for, let's say, a 10-year period. And so that's the that's what schools must follow, the guidelines they must follow going forward if they want to continue to use race. The two of you are blowing me away because I, you're almost making me feel like the decision is different than what I thought it was. And how, how does that work in practicality, Professor O? I mean, if, mm-hmm. if, you have to measure diverse and you're saying, hey, give us ways to measure diversity. Thinking, well, a way to measure diversity is to count the number of African-Americans, whites, Asians, Latinos in the room. But you, you can't do that because that's what they were sort of already doing. And how do you increase one race, racial group's success without having a negative impact? If there's a, a you know finite number of slots... How how do you put one up without taking from another? Okay, well, I'll quickly answer the questions, and then I'd love to hear what Derek thinks. So with respect to the first question, it's not about measuring. It's not using racial composition of the class. That's not what the court's saying. That's not what you're trying to measure. Okay. We'll have to say diversity serves these specific learning outcomes. Like they had argued, Harvard had argued, it promotes cross-racial understanding. So then they have to say, okay, if, if in fact diversity does promote cross-racial understanding, we want to be able to measure that to see if in fact diversity does promote cross-racial understanding. Okay. Different so that one, that's what needs to be measured. They need to come up with learning outcomes that can be measured and then measure them and then say, yes, this is how diversity can and does um, achieve that specific, concrete, measurable learning outcome. Professor Black, thank thank you, Professor O, for your thoughts on Professor Black. What are your thoughts on this conversation and um, how one race specifically doesn't have a negative impact when you elevate one race? How does it not negative impact the other? Well, I mean, I suppose just to sort of go down the the rabbit hole a bit. I mean, it, it's not only racial diversity that might have the capacity to reduce um, cross-racial stereotypes, right? I mean, it may be that, you know, you certainly need a racially diverse, um, you know, student body, but it might be that someone like me actually helps as well, right? Coming from my personal experience as a white person and, you know, having the experience I had to talk about that. I mean, it, it becomes quite a complicated thing to sort of figure out who it is that actually is contributing. Certainly racial diversity would, would, would help on that. 
I mean, I will say, I think, you know, I agree with what Professor O was saying. I, I, I'm, I'm, I am worried, though, about the sort of social science capacity to isolate. I mean, that, that, and that's why I think you know, Thomas saying, well, for all intents and purposes, which is, you know, you're, you're putting educational institutions at such a high um, threshold of evidence um, to isolate you know, admitting these students or these students from this background has this effect on other students as opposed to other things that, of course, are happening in the world. So, you know, it, it's not that it's impossible. It's just sort of difficult. And even if we go back to, to the Brown versus Board of Education, there was some social science evidence that the court did accept, a more favorable Supreme Court accepted sort of social science about, you know, how the effects of school segregation, the effects of school segregation on sort of African-American social, uh, self-esteem. But, you know there's a lot going on in society beyond, beyond just school. So, you know, I think, yeah, there's that, that, that path forward. The professor O talks about, I worry about how demanding the evidence would be, but there's another mm -hmm. path forward that's side and gray, but it, but it, you know, the court talks about it and it, it talks about character and diversity that are, are not, uh, they don't say not race exclusive, but court recognizes that, you know, people of color and all people have faced adversity. And many of us have faced a lot of adversity and race might be a huge aspect of that diversity. And to consider that adversity and overcoming it mm -hmm. is actually a positive character trait that could, that makes one sort of, you know, warrant on a merit basis, you know, sort of admission. What the court is emphasizing, I think, there is that you cannot treat race as a box that you check that automatically means you have or have not faced adversity, that you really have to drill down into individual experiences. And so, um, you know, the difference with that route is that it requires a lot more admissions officers to reach yes. patients, a lot more culturally. And I think also to protect themselves from litigation, be documenting that inquiry of all students, not just students of one particular race. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of institutions uh, are actually ready to, to pick up and run with that and make those investments. Uh, so I think, you know, I think there's, there's hope there as well. Well, and that was sort of my follow-up question to all of this is, what's the practical effect? Is the practical effect, at least for right now, maybe it, it's really, I appreciate this conversation to think, okay, this isn't the end. This is a new place, and maybe we're going to grow from here. The practical effect is, and I will say, I have a, I have a 17-year-old daughter. She's about to apply for colleges. So for the, the people that are applying right now and the practical effect at colleges right now, is affirmative action gone, at least for the moment? No, no. There, there, there are. You know, I, I can. I'm not disclosing anything particularly confidential here. I don't think, but, but you know, I mean, admissions offices were expecting some yes. version of this result. Fact, they were expecting worse, right? And, and and I was trying to prod them that well, maybe there'll be this 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 path that we can take, and that's why I meant court did do at least with admissions officers, uh, you know, a favor, and it did explicitly talk about this. And so, yes, there are right now, as we speak, admissions offices that are rewriting or have already rewritten the questions that they pose to applicants and are already made, planning on making the top of inquiries that, that I was just referencing in my prior discussion. And we also have, you know, some other institutions in California and Michigan that have gone through this. That have done this, yes. And so, you know, I worry that because of the New York Times headlines, you know, your less sophisticated institutions or less committed institutions will use this, you know, moment as a time to say, well, we're done with that. But I think a, a lot of other institutions that understand the importance of this, you know, are, are going to put in the effort to this summer do what they need to do to, to continue to enroll a diverse, you know, student body. And I want to read a statement that we got from UW-Madison um, that specifically said that um, UW-Madison Chancellor Mnookin will be uh, looking at modifications to aspects. Here's the, the statement. We will require some modifications to aspects of our current admissions practices. 
we will of course adapt our practices to comply with the law so it wasn't it, it was exactly what you were talking about professor black of okay it's time to rework it and rethink it not to say chopping block this is gone we're never going to think about this again but how to rethink it um professor o you're you're not nodding along so there is still uh, some version of this and colleges have been ready for this so that right my my daughter's college class wherever if i'm fortunate enough that she gets into college somewhere and she goes out to college it will in theory be as diverse as the people that were the year above her or that's not realistic well we won't know until we see we the get there so my guess is it likely be lower but maybe not as low as people may think maybe not as low as it was in California after affirmative action was banned or in Michigan. Um, but I think like Derek is saying, the keyword is modification, not complete, you know, revamping and eliminating what they've used. The goal is still permissible diversity, promoting diversity. Um, and they've got two means. They can still try to use race. That I think was is going to change the most. They can no longer just use race as a plus factor at this point, because now they got to show, come up with evidence of learning outcomes to justify that kind of use of race, the way they did it before. But looking at their um, statements, interviewing them and finding about their dis experience, individual experience with race, racial discrimination, overcoming that, that they can do, that they will do you know, starting with the first applications that they get in. Um, and I just want to address Derek's concerns about the standard, how, you know, how easy or difficult is it going to be for schools to find measurable outcomes that the court will be satisfied with? I'm not sure. I think it seems really difficult. And Th Thomas may end up being right that Roberts effectively overruled Grutter. But I think it's still fair game and we need this is where creativity comes in. We need really creative, brilliant educational researchers to do the hard work and come up with these measurable outcomes that will convince judges. Yes, that these are not amorphous. These are concrete enough. And yes, you can go ahead and use race. So, um, so yes, modify Every, all schools have to modify their admissions for no doubt. Um, but they will still, you can still pay attention to um, the racial, the specific experience of cap applicants with race and racism. That's still perfectly fine under um, the Harvard decision. And maybe even going forward, then the court, the schools may start to use race again, again, justifying it with measurable evidence of measurable outcomes. Carousel, one thing. Go ahead. I've been wondering about, I don't know what. Sort of thoughts this for someone to ask me the other day about how this you know might affect HBC. You know, enrollments. I used to teach at you know, Howard Law School myself, but um, you know, I, I do wonder though to what extent perception will may have some effect on reality here. As we mm -hmm. sort of see, you know, affirmative action is dead, and and uh, you know, some people thought that some understandably that some of these environments weren't that welcoming to begin with. Um, and so I, I wonder how this is actually going to affect uh, African-American students, Latino students, you know, applications, whether actually they might, some of them might start self-selecting for, for, for other schools, yeah. uh, which can have an, will have an effect no matter how far, you know, our, you know, admissions officers at our traditional light institutions. So you know, we'll see, but I think this is why I always say we need to be careful with our language and, you know, hopefully people get, get the message out as you're offering us a chance to do now, but, um, you know, it may not be business as usual, but it's not, you know, it's going to not be a night and day type of scenario. We're talking right now about the United States Supreme Court decision uh, just last week on uh, the role affirmative action can play in college decision making. I won't say eliminating affirmative action because we're learning right now that's not actually the right word to use. Um, we're talking with Professor Reginald O and Professor uh, Derek Black. We would love to hear from you. If you want to join the conversation, please give us a call at area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. Jay, um, 
and Shali are in the studio. They're ready for your calls. They can pet you on the air to join with us, or you can leave a message with them to pass on to us. However you want to join the conversation, we would love to hear from you. Area code 608-256-2001, extension 9. And David's been waiting, wants to join the conversation. Thank you so much for calling, David. What are your thoughts? Oh, thank you. I um, was wondering if your guests are uh, uh, aware or familiar with uh, something that's kind of more insidious uh, with this. It's that America, after World War II, used education as part of its collateral. Uh, Before World War II and kind of since the beginning of the nation, the gold in the treasury was seen as the collateral of the nation. But after World War II, the International Monetary Fund was put together, and the collateral of the nation was seen as everything in the infrastructure that had been built before. You know, all the locks and dams and ports and highways and things like that were seen as the collateral. But education was also. The future. Yeah, and and the more a nation developed an education system, the greater its collateral became. And when you start looking at the people uh, who are behind this, uh, the John Birch Society, the money launderers, the currency speculators, they love it when uh, nations have to fend for themselves and not have a, a, a basis in reality. And uh, the idea that America could be diminished by ruining its education system uh, would then uh, make every asset of America open to being snapped up by Mm. corruption. So I'm just wondering if you're familiar with that. That's a really interesting concept, and I I would love to hear what our um, guests think and and maybe even pivot a little if, if they think about really what role this decision has on the bigger picture of the economy and and businesses and how sort of America runs. I mean, do uh, on some level, right, these elite schools, Harvard and Yale, and I think we'll get to that a little bit, but the schools that really rely on this, taking that away, it has an impact on them and the role and the feeder that they are to the, you know, business of America, but also... Maybe these elite schools are, you know, 50 schools out of the thousands that exist in this country. So interesting to get people's thoughts. Professor O, go ahead. Uh, well, I got a couple, lots of different thoughts. Um, so I think this decision undermines the principle of equal educational opportunity in mm-hmm. the United States. And I know that Roberts invokes Brown versus Board of Education to justify his decision. And I vehemently disagree. Brown actually supports affirmative action. Brown and desegregation is very consistent with affirmative action. Affirmative action is a form of integration just at at the higher education level. Yes. In a similar way that desegregation was for K through 12 after Brown versus Board of Education. So that's why it's diversity is in some ways kind of... um, doesn't quite get at what affirmative action at heart is about. I think the goal is what we think of as racial integration, um, the way we think of racially integrated schools, where um, just uh, students of different races going to school together is a normal thing. Um, And that to the extent that this decision will reduce the um, level of integration, racial integration in schools, it is un- it's in uh, contrary to the spirit uh, and the whole vision of Brown and a racially integrated society. And just in terms of the actors behind this lawsuit, um, I, th- I think the caller kind of gets to this. Yes. Uh, this opinion served, there were, they've worked on this um, lawsuit for decades by um, activists who wanted to overturn and ban affirmative action going back a long time. It's, it's been a litigation strategy, and they finally succeeded. Now, the, the thing about this, why this case seemed a good vehicle for um, essentially white billionaires and activists to conservative activists to use to overturn affirmative action is because of the um, 
the so-called plaintiffs, the real plaintiffs that are involved in this case, right? Asian American students brought this lawsuit. The Students for Fair uh, Admissions brought this lawsuit alleging Harvard and USC discriminated against Asian American applicants. So that now it seems like, wow, affirmative action is, is hurting a racial minority group. Mm-hmm. And that kind of takes away the kind of the, um, um, the moral support for affirmative action if sex hurting a racial minority. Now, what I want to suggest is um, Asian Americans, even though they should be the central plaintiff figure, figures <laughs> in this litigation and the decisions, they're not have been totally cast aside. Right. If you read Robert's opinion, Asian Americans are not in the opinion. He does not discuss it, their claims, the claims they rose in the lower courts about discrimination uh, by Harvard and USA, especially by Harvard. None of that is in the decision. He, you, you read the statement, uh, the issue statement by Roberts. He doesn't mention that Asian Americans are really bringing this lawsuit. It's gone. He's erased Asian Americans from their own lawsuit and narrative. It's, um, and it's so, like they were a pawn in the. They were a pawn in all of us. He, Roberts did not really, obviously, right? He did not pay attention. Did not care about the claims brought forth by Asian Americans, what he was focused on was restricting affirmative action to the extent. Thank you, Professor O. Professor Black, your thought about the question and really the bigger sort of economic and business implications of this decision. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'll say that in the K through 12 context, a lot of what the caller was saying really resonates with me. It was sort of the privatization of the public good, and there's there are a ton of corruption and 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 things of that sort going on in the charter school industry. And now we have a lot of very problematic private schools wanting wanting vouchers. But I, I won't distract us of that. In the higher education, I think it's to me it's a little bit honestly a little bit hard to wrap my head head around the, the caller's question, um, just because I, I don't perceive it as, as sort of an economic issue as much as I perceive it as sort of, you know, a, a race, uh, white, white, you know, grievance issue in, mm-hmm. in many respects. But, you know, as the economy, there, there's no doubt when you, if you go back and, and look at, um, um, the, where the business community was on Grutter and how important they thought this was, um, to preparing students and a global workforce and, sort of America being its best self in the marketplace, you know, th- this undermines that. And always, not to my students who think this, just a lot of people are quite dismissive of the diversity rationale. They think this is something that, that Reginald or I cooked up as sort of cover for, you know, racial predilections. But I said, look, you know, th- there's plenty of economists out there, sort of the hard number folks that have sort of looked at this and like, what does it take to produce you know, a better product, or does it take to produce a better team? And they take a diverse team over a non-diverse team every day, every time, right? Because the, the, the hard science that the court wants is clearly there uh, on the employment side where you really are measuring outcomes. And so to the extent, you know, this decision causes a drop in diverse uh, educational environments, it, it is undermining, you know, American productivity. Interesting, interesting. Professor Black, can you help us um, sort of understand what has happened in the states where um, affirmative action was sort of taken away. I'm thinking about California, the UC schools, and how what what did the UC schools in California see? How is their application different? I know again again because I'm living through this right now. Is oh the UC schools don't use the Common Core app. It's a different app. Oh the UC schools. Don't want to know what your ACT score is, my daughter. She took the ACT score, and I said, well, if you do well, you know, one thing if you don't. But all these things that I didn't even realize it until we started having these conversations. But is that what did the UC, University of California schools, do in response when that state uh, passed a state law, a referendum, to eliminate affirmative action in higher education decisions? 
Yeah, I mean, they, they did a lot of things you talked about. We mentioned earlier taking harder looks at at uh, you know the applications and then lots of essays. In fact, if you go on the California website, it'll it'll list all the factors that they looked at. Now, you know, I think I think so. Two things, you know, they did experience an initial you know drop in, in diverse uh, student enrollment, so it did have a uh, a negative impact. They bounced back and, and sort of recovered that ground. I think that that fact is probably a really big one in the court's mind, thinking that there's a race, more racially school way to go about this. I will say that I, I have some anxieties around that because, um, you know, ultimately those schools are, you know, high profile schools that are attracting students across, you know, state lines. Um, and it, it, you know, they're, they're now we're in a whole different market, so to speak. And so if everyone, um, well, let me say it more simply. I wondered to what extent that the new application process has brought in diversity to California's benefit or Michigan's benefit. But the the more they succeed, maybe the harder it becomes for South Carolina. Other places, the students are crossing borders. You know, that's not a criticism of anyone, but I think you know when all the institutions move towards this, you know, there's still going to be competition for you know, uh, for, for students. And so there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers in a national so-called marketplace. Well, so, you know, I, I, I hope, um, you know, I, I don't, so I can't predict that these race neutral alternatives that probably seem quite appealing to the Supreme court are going to prove just as successful in Alabama or South Carolina or Kentucky as they did in California. Okay. Well, and it's very interesting to sort of rate, in the last few days, how I've been studying up, the two of you, right, have been done this much longer than I have, but to sort of read about use the UC system and, and its intentional, almost as they call it, trial and error, and hundreds of millions of dollars that they intentionally put into recruitment, into efforts that you have to have not just the money to do it, but the the will to do it, the will to try and fail and say, ooh, that didn't work, to study it, to look at it, to, to do all of these things that are perhaps what your school is not already doing. Do we expect to see universities actually have a desire to do that and a capacity to? Well, uh, I think that's a big issue. Um, the will and commitment schools have to what they say is important to them, diversity and inclusion. Now, I think um, race still, like Derek and I are, are you know, suggesting, race is still an option, is still on the table. But um, I think schools will need to look at race, be, really come, become really creative and look at race neutral means of promoting uh, inclusion um, and ensuring uh, underrepresented students of, from race, underrepresented racial groups are admitted into their schools. So they have to be creative. And there are, I think, the doors wide open. This is where creative lawyers, law students need to come in and come up and help these schools out. Say, so here's what you can do um, to promote inclusion and diversity, racial integration. And I'll just give you some a couple examples. Yes. Um, one, an easy one. There's the big issue now is about legacy admissions at schools like Harvard. I don't know if you're aware of legacy admissions. Mm -hmm. uh, Harvard gives it's affirmative action for um, children of alumni at Harvard and also children of parents who donate a lot of money to Harvard. Those students get a boost because of their legacy, their connection to Harvard. And there's a lawsuit pending now, I think challenging Harvard's legacy program, arguing that that legacy program violates the protection in the, in the similar way that the held that race-based affirmative action is, is that like a disparate impact argument that the the people in one category versus another well i haven't read the complaint but i suspect it might be an equal protection discriminatory intent claim mm. uh, but also title six claim of disparate impact right. okay. okay and um and the thing about the legacy admissions studies uh have shown that uh 43 up in some years 43 percent of the white students at harvard have been admitted through legacy admissions. <laughs> so it ends up being effectively, arguably affirmative action for really privileged, you know, privileged white students. So you get rid of that and that opens up the door, right, for a, a letting in 
um, more students of underrepresented groups. In Texas, uh, a couple of decades ago, they did what's called the 10% plan. So they radic the University of Texas system in Texas changed their admissions process to say any student in a Texas high school graduates in the top 10% of their cl class are automatically admitted to the University of Texas. And what happened as a result, because schools are heavily segregated in Texas, right. that that meant African-American students in those segregated schools would be admitted, the top 10% would be admitted. To the if you're in a, a school that's heavily black, they're going, right. you're going to have a higher right. number of blacks in the 10%. Yes. yes. That's right. So that is what they also, I think they still do that in addition to using race, but that's also an option in states where schools are heavily segregated. And the, up, the good thing, the interesting thing about the Texas plan is not, it didn't just benefit African-Americans or Latinos, it also benefited rural white students. Who's that the same? It ended up being affirmative action for the socially disadvantaged whites. And so and I think that's a good thing. I think that's a great outcome that that plan, race neutral, had that effect. So that, those are just two examples. And there are more. And like I said, I think we just need to be more creative about what we can do. I want to take a caller. Um, thank you for all of that. Uh, Joanne, you've been waiting for a few minutes. You wanted to talk about. Um, affirmative action specifically for uh, racial groups? Yes. Oh, yes, in recent public discourse, we've been defining affirmative action in terms of white and black issues, whereas affirmative action includes Hispanic, it includes Native American, and it includes, includes Southeast Asian individuals, and which, which include Hmong. We have responsibilities, of course, to Native and Americans and and uh, and Hmong individuals as well as as, as well as others, of course, uh, but defined responsibilities. And I'm wondering if this way of of siphoning these huge issues into this one one uh, distinction, the black-white distinction, is um, uh, diminishing our overall yeah. discourse on on uh, these really important issues and what real diversity can involve. So, thank you very much. Thank you for that question. And Professor Lean, Professor uh, Professor Ohm, Professor Black, to to help reference it uh, in Madison and in Wisconsin, we have um, a large population of Hmong individuals compared to populations of Hmong individuals in other parts of the country. Um, so that's absolutely something that our our local communities have tried to intentionally uh, include, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. Um, I mean, Professor O, you touched on that a little bit of how in this conversation, we're not talking about Asian American students. I mean, how much of this conversation is really making it black and white and leaving everybody else behind? Well, I think that's that is a that is a complexity and that it is affirmative action. The Harvard was for uh, African-American students, Latino-American students and Native American students. So, yeah, we can't just focus on, um, you know, just African-Americans compared to whites. Um, so it's definitely multicultural. Um, but there it's really the issue of I, I don't say I don't think of it in terms of necessarily black versus other groups or just black, you know, the black white dynamic. It's really in terms of underrepresentation and, you know, the continuing kinds of societal disc discrimination throughout society, whether it's. You know, segregated schools um, at you know from K to twelve that are still segregated throughout this nation. Um, that you look at just what are the factors leading to underrepresentation of certain groups mm -hmm. in higher education. So, so many I think things. that should be the focus. Really focus on not who, right, but the the effects, the the reality of what's causing underrepresentation of various racial groups. Professor Black. You know, we're we're coming near the end of the show. I really wanted to get your thoughts on. So, what happens next? Um, what are things that people that are listening and thinking about this that that care about diversity in our schools and our in our country? What what should they be paying attention to? What role can can people play in helping to shape our institutions and colleges? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm a I'll, let me say I'm a silver lining type of a guy. I like that naivete or something else. But 
But I think there is a, a silver lining here in this decision, and it, it really sort of forces to the fore a problem that we've had for decades, which is how we define merit. Unfortunately, you know, the plaintiffs in the court, um, you know, define tend to define merit on whoever's got the highest in LSAT. You know, anyone who's an actual educator will, will understand that 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 is uh, maybe helps us a little bit in thinking about merit, but it, it but you. You can't compare the one, you know, those 164 LSAT of of the you know, child of two parents with PhDs to the 160, you know, LSAT of a child from a single parent household. The, you can't just say four points makes you more meritorious. I think the silver lining here is it's really sort of pushing us in, in in the direction, you know, the top 10 percent plan that Professor O talked about. Right? Well, those kids in segregated schools don't have the same resources, right? We also know the SAT is like you know, heavily sort of biased towards people of high socioeconomic status. And I think what we have seen, some institutions, University of Texas with its personal achievement index, and I think even this this character and overcoming discrimination that we talked about earlier is really sort of pushing our schools to stop taking the cheap way out and think that, you know, a flat GPA or a flat SAT tells us who has the most merit. It does not. It never has. It is the cheap way of admitting and not admitting students. So maybe the silver lining here is that those who really are committed will move towards a, a more rigorous admissions process that that tries to look at students holistically and 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 broadens their thought of what really merit is. And if we do that, you know, I think a lot of this underrepresentation that we've talked about begins to fade away because, you know, we see merit in various different people in various different I like the silver lining. I like with with the hope that there is a, a way out of this. Um, it's It's been fabulous talking with the both of you. We could talk for on and on, but uh, unfortunately we're out of time. But I really appreciate both of you joining us, really breaking down this decision and, and helping us understand what the future looks like. I feel much more optimistic, I must say, based on this conversation with the two of you than I did going into it. And I appreciate that. Um, so thank you both so much for joining us today, Professor Derek Black and Professor Reginald O. Thank you so much for joining us and um, sharing your wisdom. And thanks, everyone, for listening to our show today. Huge thanks, Sholly, for uh, producing, Jay for engineering. We will be back again next week. We're going to be talking about the U.S. Supreme Court decisions on uh, religion. There were actually two that came out last week. want to talk about them and the impact they will have on all of us. Thanks, everyone, again, for listening to WORT 89.9 FM Madison. We'll see you again next week. Disregard the mainstream. Media distorted. We come and listen and support it. Live and direct, we come and never be recorded with information that will never be reported. Disregard the mainstream. Media distorted. We come and listen and support it. Infocutus and Tease and Love. Woo-woo!